Our reading comes from Zechariah chapter 4. This morning I'll give you a couple of minutes to look that up. If you are uh, reading along, the words will be on the screen uh, to follow along. Zechariah chapter 4. Perhaps not the most familiar of passages to us, although there'll be some parts of it that you will recognize, I'm sure. Not the most well-trodden parts of Scripture, and nevertheless, really significant for us today. It's been a fascination to me in reading through the Minor Prophets uh, recently, just how applicable they are today, just how much and how directly they can uh, speak to our day. And in the coming year, we'll be considering that. We'll be looking at Micah uh, as we begin our, uh, our sermon series later in January. The next couple of Sundays, we'll have... Douglas and Jim McFarlane preaching, but uh, when we resume our main series, we'll be looking at the book of Micah and see what it has to say. The minor prophets are tremendous, and I would encourage you to read, uh, to read through them. Zechariah chapter 4 this morning, through verses 1 to 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and you shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for a reading of it together this morning. It's perhaps one that we will need to, to pray for our understanding, given some of the, the language and the pictures, the imagery in the passage. It's not readily accessible to us, perhaps, but as we explore the passage this morning, I trust we'll be encouraged as we hear what the Lord had to say. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts and minds, Lord, that we might receive your Word and be blessed by it. Lord, we ask all this, that we might be able to go into this week and this year glorifying you as we've been called to do as your children. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. If you were to reflect back over the past year and then look to the year coming, how confident do you feel uh, right now at the very beginning of 2022? There is always so much uh, uncertainty, so much hope, so much promise, and always uh, a sort of sense of trepidation at this kind of time of year as we look to a whole 12 months wondering what on earth they'll hold given the 12 months that have just gone by. Did you end 2021 sort of triumphantly, feeling you finished the year well and that you'd come to the end of it and you're expectant of, a, of another year to come in which you will grow and deepen in your relationship with God, you'll be more mature and, and so on? Or do you feel that you just sort of limped to the end of the year, that you're, you're just glad you got there and that 2022 hopefully will be better but it certainly can't be an awful lot worse. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle, I don't know. It's a big challenge for us as a church to think about that. You know, what have we done over the past year? How have things gone? What will 2022 hold for us as a fellowship? And it's been a challenge, especially because of the restrictions and so on. Although we've spent most of the year worshipping together, we haven't seen all of our congregation back in the building regularly, and that's for all sorts of reasons. And we think, how much have we done in the community outside? Our community fridge has kept going right the way through, but again, have we done all we could have done? And have we made use, the best use of the opportunities we've had? It's a big challenge. And as we think of the coming year, and hopefully things beginning to get back to some semblance of normality, although we said that last year, but let's hope. Then what will the coming year hold? What will we do with the opportunities we have? And what will we do with all of the resources that God has put at our disposal. When we come to the minor prophets and books like Zechariah, we find Israel going through not the same experience as us, but a comparable experience. Israel has gone through a tremendously difficult time. They have been destroyed or are being destroyed, depending on which of the minor prophets you read, um, and are being either carried off into exile or are coming back from exile. Their whole nation has been laid waste. Most of their best people have been taken off to Babylon. The temple and the city of Jerusalem have been flattened almost completely. There is nothing left. A few people have been left in the land, but that's the ones the Babylonians didn't really want. They're not interested in farmers and shepherds and so on. And so they've just been left to it. So what do they do as they come to the end of this experience or as they go through it? How do they look to the future thinking that the last year or so has been as bad as it could possibly have been? How do they look to the future? They're on their own. They've got nothing and no one to help them. No other nations are interested in them. So what on earth do they do? We find in passages like this in Zechariah, for all that there is a note of struggle and a hint of despair, there is great hope, tremendous anticipation for the future. The Lord wants to encourage the people of Judah to know that he's with them. And because he's with them, they shouldn't despair. And he tells them, as he begins to encourage them, as he helps them to look to the future with hope and with expectancy, he tells them that they should be hopeful because they are his people and they're perfect. Now immediately as soon as I say that, you think, well, 
It can't be totally perfect. I mean, if you go back and read the first three chapters and then read the following chapters afterwards, it's very clear the people of Judah are very far from perfect. In fact, the Lord has some tremendously hard things to say to his people because they do things wrong all the time and they go the wrong way almost constantly, a bit like we do. We sort of do all right most of the time. But there are all sorts of times when we go horribly wrong and we say the wrong things, do the wrong things, think the wrong things, sometimes on an almost hour-by-hour basis. They are clearly, and we are clearly not totally perfect, still frightened, still sometimes lazy, still sometimes selfish. But they are the people that the Lord has called out of exile in Babylon. They are the people that the Lord is drawing together in Jerusalem for the purpose, not just of rebuilding the old broken down buildings, not just making Jerusalem look as nice as it did before the Babylonians swept in and and flattened everything, but to transform the whole world. Now, just to pause for a second, can you imagine how difficult that would be for the people of Judah to understand? They have been reduced to nothing removed to a land that isn't their own, half the nation have been left behind to sort of fend for themselves, and now that the people are beginning to come back, the Lord's expectation is that this people will transform all nations in the whole world. That's a ridiculous idea. It's an utter nonsense. The Babylonians might have had a chance. They're a huge empire. They have almost limitless wealth and resources at their disposal. Israel has less than nothing. And yet, this is God's expectation. The people are not just to survive, the people will thrive, and they will thrive to the point where Jesus is born into their midst that we've just celebrated over the last few weeks, and through him, the entire world will be transformed. The people aren't totally perfect in every way, but they are perfect for what God wants to accomplish through them, and that is the key. In the opening section of the passage, we read of Zechariah being woken from sleep and this angel who's guiding him through a series of visions gives him another one or helps him understand the next vision that he has. We have this golden lampstand. Now, we have various lampstands mentioned throughout Scripture and there is significance to it being a lampstand, a, a, a source of light in the midst of darkness. We've got a seven-branch menorah in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Come the time of the temple, the lampstands were absolutely huge. We have a lampstand with seven lamps in Revelation, symbolizing the church and the presence of Christ with his church as Jesus goes in between all the lamps, making sure they're filled up with oil and the wicks are trimmed and, and they're burning brightly. Jesus tends to the life of the church, which is the light of uh, the world. Jesus is the light in their midst, as it were, the source of their light uh, in the world. That's why Jesus, in Matthew 25, says he is the light of the world. And all his followers are like little lights. They're derived from him. They draw their source uh, of, of light from Jesus, and they go and light the dark world around them. The light is provided by God and tended to him, but it's to exist in the world, to enlighten a dark place. Here, though, we have a lampstand that has all of that imagery in mind, but something different. The lampstand here isn't like the other ones. This one has a bowl on the top, and the bowl has seven lamps connected to it, but each of those lamps 
has seven other little lips or spouts on them containing a wick to light. So we have 49 flames from one lampstand. This is a lampstand bigger than any other lampstand in the whole of the Bible. It gives out more light than anything else that we've had up to this point. This is a truly different lampstand. It is massively bigger than anything that has gone before. And this one, unlike all the other lampstands, never ever runs out. We find it has a limitless source of oil. There are two olive trees standing on either side with two golden pipes that um, give a steady stream of oil into this lampstand. And as the lampstand uh, is filled with oil, the imagery is all the other lamps uh, are filled on it. And so all of them are kept burning the whole time. This completely surpasses anything that had been used in the temple Anything that had been used in the tabernacle before it. Their old temple and all its riches were gone. It had been destroyed, burned, flattened by, uh, by the Babylonians. But this is coming to replace it. Now, Judah, the people of Judah feel small and they feel worthless. They're frightened. They could be snuffed out in an instant. It's not unheard of for a whole bunch of people to be sent back to their homeland and then the, the king back in Babylon dies and he's replaced with someone who thinks, actually, we're just going to change the way things are run and he sends his armies out to destroy the people he's just sent home. That is not out with the bounds of possibility. And even if that didn't happen, who cares about those people? They're just shepherds and, and farmers. They don't make any difference. So if the people of Egypt want to come and wipe them out, would the king of Babylon send his armies to help? Maybe. Maybe not. They live in an incredibly precarious situation. And it was something on my mind as we've seen the events in Afghanistan unfold over the last number of months that the people of Afghanistan must feel. They have no idea what is coming in this next year. They don't know if the Taliban are going to continue as they currently do, if they're going to be overthrown by someone else, or if infighting will break them apart. They don't know if they'll be allowed to go to school, if the shops will open, if there'll be any food. They feel incredibly precariously balanced. Everything could go to bits tomorrow, and they have no way of knowing. And even if they do know, they've got nothing they can do about it. They're just normal people. And so it is with the people of Judah. And what God is telling them with this vision is that as he stood as a light in their midst during the highest point in their history, when they were at their strongest, with the temple and with all of its lights in it, they're going to have something even better than that in their future. This lampstand doesn't yet exist. It is to come. It's a vision. And we find that what went before wasn't just good, something to be aspired to. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. It was never supposed to be the final and full thing for the people of Israel. It was always temporary. So that as the people look back at their history and see how far they've fallen, God is reassuring them that what they had before, for all of its grandeur, for all of its splendor, was like a guttering tea light compared to what awaits them in their future. Something far more magnificent. Something of far greater value and worth. And it all ultimately points forward, we know, looking back to Jesus, who comes and says, I am the light of the world. I'm far bigger and better than anything that went before because that was foreshadowing, picturing me to come. And now I'm here, you've got everything that you had been promised and what awaits you in the future is only better and better and better as time goes on because I've come to guarantee it, to do that work. And Jesus comes 
And he dies on the cross, and he makes payment for sins in a far more complete way than all of the Old Testament sacrifices added together that we'll celebrate later in our service around the table. And he leads his people in a far more effective way than any of the kings of Israel had managed to do. Even David and Solomon, the highest point in Israel's history, were nothing compared to the leadership of Jesus, who doesn't just lead us in a temporary way as the queen or our government does, but leads us eternally. We find that Jesus is this this lampstand, this ever-flowing source of the grace and the light of God into the world. And what's important is that Judah latches on to that image, this glorious future, that they see that and recognize however hard it's going to be to rebuild this city, rebuild our temple, reconstitute our people, feed each other and make sure that we're safe and protected, however difficult that's going to be, Jesus, this great leader, this great light, will always be before us, will always be leading us. Now, they don't know his name is Jesus, but they know that this is coming. It's a guarantee. And for that reason, God says to them, you are perfect. You are the people that will give rise to that king. Through you, I will do that so that I give light not just to you, like in the temple of old, but the whole world. This lampstand is bright enough to light the entire world. And you are perfect for that. Because I am in your midst. And I'm going to use you for my glory. And that's the key thing for us, isn't it, as we face the coming year. That our hope is not in our own strength, not in our own ability or ingenuity. It's on God being in our midst. If God is what we're all focusing on, then we have cause for great hope. We are perfect, not completely, but for what God wants us to be and what God wants to do through us. Have you thought about our church and your life in that way, that you are certainly filled with many flaws, I'm sure, I I know I am, and yet I am perfectly sufficient for what God wants me to do here and now. Otherwise, you wouldn't have put me here, or you, or our church. On my mind, as we look back over the past year and look into the coming year, uh, were various little bits and pieces from my my childhood and I remember uh, being uh, a young child with my brother and going round to uh, our grandma's house and we we were round at her house regularly Uh, and one of the things that we would regularly experience was my my grandma loved singing and, um, and so we would get plonked into a big washing basket which will tell you how long ago that was Um, and we were sat in a washing basket and then we were I'm going to say vigorously, which sounds better than violently, bounced up and down inside this washing basket while she sang various songs, but the one that she inevitably sang was Wide, Wide is the Ocean, which I'm not going to sing for you because nobody needs that level of embarrassment, but Wide, Wide is the Ocean, High is the Heavens Above, Deep, Deep as the Deepest Sea is my Saviour's Love. I, though so unworthy, still am a child of His care. For his word teaches me that his love reaches me everywhere. And we had that song hammered into us repeatedly by her, literally hammered into us as we were sort of jiggled around in this washing basket. And then we were kind of turfed out at the end of it. And it, that will never leave me, ever. And for all of the songs that I've learned, um, which kind of disappeared from my life when that experience stopped, because you stop singing those songs unless you're raising children of your own, when we had our girls and we were playing with them and it came to bedtime and we were putting them down to sleep. It's astonishing just how quickly all of those words came flooding back. And all of that 
theology that's in that song, which sounds very grand, but that's what it is, all of that understanding about who God is and who I am and what I'm supposed to do in relationship with him has stayed with me all my life. Now, my grandma wasn't perfect. I can tell you that in the full confidence that she's with the Lord now, and she is perfect now, but she wasn't then, and and we can be fairly certain of that. But she was absolutely perfect for what the Lord wanted to do in my life and in my brother's life at that time. And it's exactly the same for us today. We are not the church of 10 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. That time has gone. That isn't what God is calling us to be. What God is calling us to be is His people with Him in our midst here and now because what makes us beautiful, what makes us able to do anything for Him is His power in our midst. Because He's doing it. And so as we look to the future, we should do so as a church with great hope because we are perfect for what God wants us to do in 2022. I don't know what that is. I've got no idea. Well, I have some ideas. But, but I don't know perfectly. But I know that whatever we will do, the Lord will use us and all of the gifts and all of the skills and all of the abilities that he's given each one of you together for his glory. And so we should be hopeful. We should be thankful. We should be delighted about that. As much as we're going to experience hardship and difficulty. The people of God are perfect. The people of God are perfect, though, because they are blessed by the anointed one of God, we read in the passage. Zechariah wants to know, he sees this vision, and like us, who read of the vision, think, what on earth is all this about? I don't understand. There's lampstands and trees and pipes and oil, and and I, I don't know what any of this means. Can you explain it to me? And I love the fact that the angel keeps saying to him, Do you not know what this is? Clearly he doesn't. And I don't know why the angel feels the need to pull him up on that. Maybe he should have understood. I don't know. But he obviously doesn't. And so he asks. And the angel says to him that the trees on either side of the lampstand represent the anointed ones of God. And then there's a little break in the passage and we find out what that actually is. Who these people are. We find, if we read backwards and forwards through the book, if we go back a chapter or so and read forward a chapter or so, that the first of these anointed ones is Joshua, the high priest. Now, we know that the high priest, in those times, was anointed with oil. He had oil poured over him as he was commissioned as the high priest, as a symbol of the Spirit of God washing over him and equipping him for the task, because he wasn't good enough himself to be the high priest. He needed God's Spirit to fill him, and that's what the the imagery of having oil poured over him was all the way through the Old Testament. So Joshua the high priest is the first anointed one. The second one is the person who's having the vision. It's Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is just a Persian-appointed governor of this small region of what had become the Persian Empire. The Babylonians had flattened Judah, carried them off into exile. The Babylonians had been conquered by the Persians, and now the Persians were sending them back home because they didn't like this idea of taking people out of their countries. Just send them back home and let them do what they want to do. As long as they keep paying their taxes, we're all fine with that. And so in this little passage, we have Zerubbabel, the Persian-appointed ruler. But actually, we have, if we read Matthew 1, a descendant of David. He is the king by right of birth. We find that he's not just a king because he's a descendant of David. He is one of Jesus' 
forefathers. He's in Jesus' family tree. He is by right the king of Israel and the king is also anointed because the king, unlike whatever our understanding of royalty may be today, the king is anointed because he is not enough himself to rule his people because there was an expectation he would rule his people not just in terms of taxation and the army and administering the nation but that he would rule the nation spiritually that he would encourage them in the right direction. And as the king went, so the people went, which is why in the Old Testament so often when Israel and Judah had wicked kings, the nation was judged. It seems tremendously unfair. But the reason is, as the king leads them, the people just follow in his way. They go where he leads. He is their shepherd. And so the king is anointed. He is filled with the Spirit of God so that he might lead the people right. Because it's hard being the king. God himself rules through his, his man on the throne. And through the work of these two anointed men, the presence of God and the power of God are delivered to the people. That's the image of the trees with the, the pipes flowing towards the, the lampstand. It's as if they are not just the trees, but the, the, the pipes through which the oil flows. They are bringing God's presence to his people so his people can live faithfully with him so that they might be perfect, so that he might use them to bring Jesus so that the whole world might be filled with light from this great lampstand. Now we know, looking back, that Joshua points forward to a far greater high priest to come that will be perfect. And we're going to read about that a little later in our service uh, in Hebrews 10. Zerubbabel points to a perfect king to come, and both of these are Jesus, the priest and the king, the one who will lead his people, the one who will bring God's presence into their midst, be a new and a living way that, that tears apart the curtain that separates us from God, breaks down the wall that keeps us distant from Him. Jesus is going to be that one. And we are blessed by Jesus, although we're small, although we might question how effective we might be as a church or as individuals for worshipping God and reaching the people of our community with the gospel to see people saved, we might wonder how we could ever do this, but we are blessed by God specifically so that we can do those two things. That's why we're here. It's to glorify God in these things. And we will always have sufficient blessing to enable us to do that so long as we're focused upon God and our relationship with Him that comes through Christ. We're asking for his forgiveness, asking for his leading, asking for his guiding, asking for his empowering and equipping. Any church family is transformed by Christ and made perfect through him for the work that God set before them. And so, if we focus on him in 2022, whatever we have sermons about, whatever we sing about, whatever we pray about, whatever else we might do in the community fridge or with children or with young people or with older adults or whatever it might be, if Christ is at the center of it all, we will be blessed and equipped for the task of glorifying God. And it might be that a thousand people are saved and come into our church. I don't know where we'll put them. We'll have to have shelves or something. But it might be that none come. I don't know. But I know that we will glorify God in the midst of it all if we do that. And that's all we're called to do. And the Lord will take care of the rest. So we should face this year with real optimism. The people are perfect because they are blessed. And the people are blessed because they are supplied by God. Sufficient for their every need. The problem that Judah faced as they returned from exile is how do you literally rebuild a whole nation from scratch? You've got nothing. There is 
people with skills, but you don't have money, you don't have resources, there's no stones, there's no timber, there's... How do you feed people? There are no farms. They've all just been left in the wilderness, and some of them are still working, but not enough for a nation. What do you do? In this passage, we find the lampstand. The people of God are provisioned from a limitless supply. God himself is their sufficiency through these two trees through which his presence is mediated to them. And we should note that it's his presence that they're supplied. It's not simply the workers that he sends into their midst. It's not just the money he gives them. It's not just the food he provides them. And he provides all of these things. But it's not just those things. It's his presence. He says these words, which are our verse for this year. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not through our effort. Our effort's essential. It is absolutely essential. God uses us to accomplish his ends. But the Lord isn't dependent on us. It's not through our power. It's not through the influence we have. It's great for us to be connected to the community through the community fridge. We've got folks in our fellowship that are connected to the centre through uh, chaplaincy. I'm a chaplain at the football club. We have connections with Cedar Bank School and all sorts of other places. These things are great. But it's not because of our connections that we're going to be effective. God might use those things for his glory, maybe. But that's not why we're effective. We're effective because God is present in our midst. And Zerubbabel, who has begun the rebuilding of the temple, begun this work with no idea how they're going to finish it, the Lord says, will complete it. The people will rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He's doing the work. How is he going to finish? Well, we don't know, but the Lord will use him to do the work. And that's all that really matters. And it's probably not going to go the way that everybody thought. The Lord will go about this work in a way that, that will surprise them. It will shock them. It will challenge them. It will make them a bit uncomfortable at times. But he'll do the work. Because they're supplied by God himself. And it's the same for us. Do we look at our world in the expectation that the Lord will do great things through us because he is in our midst? Because he blesses us? Because he supplies our needs with his own presence itself. Because if we do, we have cause for tremendous hope. If we don't, we have every reason to look at the world fearfully and with great doubt that we're going to accomplish anything. Because it all relies on us. But when we look at it in light of the Lord's presence in our midst, we have tremendous cause for hope that God will use you and me this year to accomplish something far more than we would ever have imagined we were capable of. And we might not see the fruit of that in our lifetimes. We might, but we might not. But what matters is that we commit ourselves to the Lord and follow in His way. So as we come to the table and share in a time of communion, let's pray together that we would have the confidence, not in our own strength, but in the presence of the Lord in our midst, that He will accomplish the work He has set before us to do in light of all He's given us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you as a people who feel in many ways encouraged, in many ways built up. But Lord, if we're honest, most of us feel a little bit battered and a little bit bruised by the last year, the last two years. Lord, we wonder what on earth this coming year is going to hold. We wonder how we'll go on, how will we cope. And Lord, truth be told, we have no idea. 
we can't see the future. We're not supposed to see the future. But you know. You know what every twist and turn will be before us. You know exactly what uh, we will have to face over these coming 12 months. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage us with the thought that we are perfectly adequate for the task that you have set before us as a church. Lord God, it's not going to go the way that we think, the way that we anticipate. It's almost certainly not going to go the way that we would like it to go this coming year. And yet, Lord, it will go exactly as you have planned it to. You will use each one of us as your people for the task of glorifying your name in this place, in our families, in our church, in our community. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be content with that. Lord, that you would help us to focus ourselves on that end and find every way we can to serve you faithfully with the gifts that you've given us, the strength that you've supplied, with the family that you've placed around us to build us up and support us. Lord God, we ask that you would help us not to look down on ourselves for the smallness of the jobs that we feel we're good at. Because, Lord, you've sent us to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and to serve our community. And that needs many small things to be done. So, Lord, please, we pray, bless us with a greater understanding of the significance of what we do for all that they might be small things. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to sacrifice over this coming year. That we would give of our very best for your sake and for your glory. For Lord, although you have ordained the end, you also ordain the means, and we are the means that you use. And so we pray that you would use everything at our disposal for your glory this coming year. For Lord, whatever else we do, whether we grow to be great in number or not, we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified by each one of us, and us all together as a fellowship. And us all together as churches across Livingston and West Lothian, Scotland and the wider world. Lord, in 2022, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we ask it all in our Saviour's name. Amen.